0: I don't think I was in that community for more than two hours before I got punched in the face the first time. And I started started thinking all this theoretical stuff at university uh, has some application and it's definitely interesting. But uh, the world's a slight different place than uh, academia.
1: Welcome back to the Northern Sentinels podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ayotte. On this episode, I'm joined by Calvin Krusty. A proud Winnipegger, Cal grew up on the boundary between the right and the wrong side of the tracks. He learned a lot about grit and resilience from having a foot in both worlds. Fortunately, strong values and work ethic landed him on the good side of the law, literally. After university, he joined the RCMP and spent the next 32 years working everything from organized crime to U.N. operations to hostage negotiations. After retiring from the Mounties. Cal started a business focused on dealing with critical risks for governments, corporations, and individuals. He's especially passionate about educating people on the threats associated with hybrid warfare. Before we get to our guest, a quick word from Mark Gasparato of Gasparato Group, a veteran-owned small business and our partner for this podcast episode. At the Gasparato Group, we help leaders and teams clear the way to live, learn, and lead into their potential which translates into greater individual productivity, higher team performance, and ultimately increased organizational profitability. That is why Gasparado Group is trusted by companies like General Dynamics, Ultra Communications, Kongsberg, PureLogic IT, and the Ontario Provincial Police to provide customized leadership development
0: expertise. Quality leadership is not a nice-to-have. It's a business imperative. How can we help you lead into your potential?
1: And now, my friends, here's a conversation with Calvin Krusty. Hey, Cal, great to meet you in person here. And uh, what a fantastic opportunity. With You just happened to come out to Ottawa for some work and a chance to sit down in person. So thanks for being on the, uh, on the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me,
1: Chris. And, uh, I mean, one of the things I think when we first met that I, I asked you about was uh, was your last name, and I uh, and wanted to make sure I got the pronunciation right, uh, but what is the background of your last name?
0: So, the uh, background was uh, on my dad's side of the family, immigrants from uh, western Ukraine, and uh, they immigrated to uh, Manitoba over 100 years ago, and uh, the original name was uh, Klostyski, and um, my grandfather uh, uh, moved to the prairies, got into uh, farming, the kids continued the farming, he got into business, uh, and, the, and his business was in a small town called Alonzo, Manitoba, and they had uh, a cafe, pool hall, hotel, a transfer truck, uh, I think a post office, a few other things, and he always had to come into uh, Winnipeg to do business, and uh, that particular name uh, caused uh, some challenges uh, in terms of interacting with the business community in Winnipeg uh, in terms of discrimination against the Ukrainians at the time, apparently. Did, did your dad truncate the name or change the
1: name, or how did that... Any idea how that evolved?
0: It was uh, my grandfather that did it, um, at the time, and then my father kept it, and other people in the family have kind of flipped back and forth and try to Anglo-Saxon it to uh, Christy rather than Krusty, for obvious uh, humorous reasons uh, and that. So they uh, they did that, and my and my wife, just as a side note, refused to take it because her name is Christy and my name being Krusty, so she kept her maiden name. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's too funny! What are are the odds? (laughs) Yeah, your dad's side of the family uh, Ukrainian. What about your mom's side of the family?
0: Irish and uh, Scottish immigrants.
1: And when did your was your mom born in Canada or was it immigrate?
0: Mom was born in uh, Canada just uh, before the war, and uh, her father and mother uh, parents immigrated. uh, I think it was like in the nineteen. Tens or 1900s, uh, like in the early uh, hundreds, like 1905 or so.
1: And they were both from, I guess, both those families were farming families?
0: Farming again uh, in terms of uh, southwestern Manitoba.
1: Okay. So how, how did their childhoods differ uh, coming from uh, two farming families? Did they have a similar experience growing up, or was it they have different sort of farming experiences as kids?
0: I'd say uh, from what I gather, um, somewhat different. you know, there seemed to be a difference between the Anglo-Saxon farming community, and I remember that you not that I'm a farming expert, but the general area that um, many of the Anglo-Saxons uh, immigrated to at that time was a very fertile farming ground, and uh, the Ukrainians were somewhat uh, directed to the less uh futile uh, or, or fertile uh, lands and um i think it was, from all accounts was a much uh, tougher go for the ukrainian uh, immigrants and how did your how did your parents uh, meet um my mother and uh, father were both uh, in the education business uh my father was a school principal uh i believe it was like in the early 50s uh in swan river manitoba and my mother was a teacher there so they met uh, there
1: so obviously they had no desire to carry on the farming legacy, yeah, yeah they, and wanted to do something different.
0: Yeah, they both both uh, left home, uh, pursued uh, um, higher education, and uh, went into the teaching background. My dad, uh, when he uh, first started, uh, he went up to a uh, somewhat kind of a famous place in Manitoba. If there's famous places there, uh, York Factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was on the Hudson Bay, and uh, it was a uh, extremely remote indigenous uh, community, and it was kind of one of the highlights of his career, being um, you know in his early twenties, uh, uh, being uh, the only uh, Caucasian person, white person in that uh, community, and he uh, thoroughly enjoyed you know um, his uh, one to two years in terms of teaching in the community, and uh, uh, always spoke fondly in terms of. You know, working with indigenous communities and that, and indigenous uh, groups.
1: There might be famous places in Manitoba, but the thing, the place that I always think of when somebody says Manitoba is Portage in Maine. Port. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That always, that kind always of jumps to mind as uh, people claiming it to be one of the coldest places on earth. And uh, so, you're you're from Winnipeg.
0: Yeah, born and raised. Yeah, and 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 still consider myself from Winnipeg. When somebody says, "Where are you from?" I, I rarely say Vancouver. I always say Winnipeg. <laughs> and what uh, what did your life look like as a kid growing up in Winnipeg? Pretty good uh, childhood. Well, not pretty good. Excellent uh, childhood. Um, you know, super fortunate. Um, remember. You know, uh, when my mom passed away a couple of years ago, you know, one of my friends said, "Hey, you had uh, won a lottery with your parents uh, in terms of the best parents in the neighborhood." So I was considered myself uh, super fortunate. Uh, I kind of grew up in kind of a middle class, middle lower class, uh, right on the fringe. Um, so I was fortunate. You know, I grew up more on the middle class side, um, but you know, several blocks away uh, was the lower. Um, class uh, neighborhood um you know with a little more uh, poverty a little more uh, challenges in terms of the community um so going to school uh you know i had the combination of growing up like in that middle class society but also getting exposed to the other side of the society and particularly as it related to Winnipeg the more um, edgy uh, part of the community and that which Winnipeg's somewhat notorious for in terms of having some rough neighborhoods uh etc so i got exposed to that growing up which uh, i actually you know embrace and value and um think for a lot of different reasons made me a better person you know growing up uh, being exposed to that growing up but i played sports you know um did a whole bunch of things i probably shouldn't have done um you know, growing up, you know, my neighbors, you know, I still keep in touch with some of them growing up, uh, you know, 40, 50 years, uh, later, you know, several of them like really close friends ended up, uh, having a life, uh, in and out of prisons. Um, but I still keep in touch with those guys, uh, still to this day.
1: Yeah. I found that really, uh, really intriguing. We had a couple times we spoken before this about how, you know, growing up in a, uh, in a part of town where you had a, a really diverse group of, of friends and, and as a career cop, I mean, was there ever a, a, a pull towards the, uh, the criminal side of things because um, you had such a diverse group of friends and maybe you were exposed to that as a kid?
0: I mean, I was exposed to criminality, but I, I was exposed to it, like, constantly. You know, ranging, um, you know, from the drug trade to uh, other activity. But, you know, I was super interested in sports. I had some fantastic uh, friends and uh, I think my mom and dad did a uh, exceptional job in terms of, you know, defining what's right, and what's wrong uh probably to the point that it became a bit of a fault <laughs> and challenging <laughs> later on in my career where uh <clears throat> I saw things they were either right or they're wrong and I uh you'll maintain those principles uh growing up so I di- I didn't get I didn't get swayed you know that much or tempted into that uh that role but I mean I was definitely around it all the time
1: How much independence did you have as a kid growing up <laughs>
0: so much so that my sister is extremely jealous 40-50 uh, years later uh, yeah I had unbelievable independence I think because my parents maybe came from uh, the farming community where I mean there's really no oversight nothing can really happen in a farming community you know in terms of a town of 100 people or whatever it's pretty uh, safe and, and uh, secure so yeah, I used to, you know, twelve years old, be out at one o'clock, two o'clock at nights with my friends, riding my bike around, um, and there wasn't, you know, that concern if my parents were out for dinner or whatever at, you know, their family's place or whatever, you know, at a late night uh, gathering. Uh, but yeah, I had significant independence.
1: You told me a story once about, uh, about your dad putting you on a greyhound. Yes, at, at, <laughs> at thirteen, and I thought that was. Uh i thought that was a pretty pretty good story that sort of demonstrated how uh how things have changed these days
0: yeah uh i mean when you reflect back on it uh and that story is obviously at 13 years old he had a ton of respect for the uh, work ethic um you know of uh the farming community and always reminded me of that uh growing up as a kid and and uh <clears throat> even though he was very much uh in in tune with academia um he also believed you know the school of hard knocks hard work was all part of it so yeah at 13 years old one summer he uh took me to the uh bus depot in winnipeg which at that time was in an extremely sketchy part of the city and rather intimidating for a 13 year old and i would say probably at that point even for a 20 or 30 year old uh that part of the city uh at that time, and uh, put me on the bus, said to the bus driver, um, here's where he's going, <clears throat> can you stop at this address, handed him a piece of paper, and said I'm let, let him off at this place on the side of a gravel road, and um, that was my um, uncle's place who had a farm back from where they originally uh, started uh, farming 60 or 70, 80 years before that, 60 probably, uh, at Alonzo, Manitoba, and and, uh, dropped me off, you know, at 13 years old on the side of a gravel road. And I spent a good part of the summer farming and doing, um, driving a tractor and that at 13 years old and kind of realizing that, uh, rather quickly, I mean, I super enjoyed it and it's probably one of the fun, uh, fondest memories I've ever had. Uh, but that as a result of some other experiences, you know, doing labor work, uh, as a teenager, I realized, um, probably I'm best to go on to university, get an education and uh, not be a laborer for the rest of my life.
1: As you got into the later years of high school, did you, so you, you knew you weren't going to go into farming. You were, you wanted to go to university. Did you have beyond that sort of higher education? Did you have a a sense of where you wanted, what you wanted to do for a career? I don't think
0: I uh, really did in high school at least I don't recall it. Um, I, I think, you know, as we talked before, I, I struggled a bit in, uh, school growing up. Um, probably had a little, um, uh, insecurity relative to my education because I had a speech impediment when I was uh, much younger, when I was in uh, grade two and I used to get pulled out of, uh, school, uh, growing up. Um, and, uh, have the odd person make fun of me for my speech impediment, which I uh, eventually got away. Hopefully, it doesn't come back today <laughs> during this podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I think that challenged me, and I think uh, it probably uh, even compromised my mom's confidence, as we've talked about before, in terms of her confidence, in terms of me going on uh, and that. And I, in school, I was more interested in hanging out with my buddies, you know, having a Beers on Friday night, playing sports, um, you know, dating, uh, and just being a, a normal kind of a teenager and having a ton of fun. Um, so I wasn't really thinking about that. And my mom was kind of steering me, I think, in my last year of high school towards um, being a, a trade uh, person—plumbing, uh, electrical, carpenter, or whatever—and and, uh, and uh, as we've talked about before, and my dad was uh, going, "Well, hey." I think he can uh, do university. Let's push him in there, see if he can do it, and maybe the, you know create some other opportunities uh, career-wise and that. So,
1: at what point did the idea of some form of service form in your mind?
0: I remember actually, and I think it was probably the exposure from, particularly uh, my mom, maybe my dad a little bit. I think I was, like, probably in junior high school where I always thought I wanted to help people, and I think my mom was probably the most empathetic person on the planet. Um, and she was, you know, involved with her church group, helping people always, helping uh, new immigrants come to uh, Canada from Africa and other places. So I think at that age I was kind of going, hey, I want to help people around the world. Um like, I remember, oh yeah, now that you say that, I'm having kind of flashbacks lying in bed thinking about, hey, what I'm going to do when I grow up. And I just remembered wanting to help people, uh, you know, even when I was, I was probably in my junior, junior high school years. What was the first step when you graduated high school then? First step when I graduated high school, uh, university. I, I went there to do a general uh, arts program. It was probably in that year when I started having conversations with people, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, I had a um, my cousin's husband was uh, in the RCMP, um, and so I started. I think looking at RCMP the second year, third year, I met somebody from Csis in my class that was a adult student. Then I started exploring that. So I was kind of, I was kind of thinking that. You know, reflecting back on it i wish i met somebody in the military because i probably would have pursued that <laughs> but i uh yeah so i i started at probably my first or second year university kind of defining that hey i want to go into policing or the intelligence world
1: one of my uh one of, one of my favorite stories you've told me is about uh you being a a summer student with the rcmp and i still can't wrap my head around that story but uh Uh, I guess that was your first touch point with the Mounties,
0: was it? Yes. Um, I mean, I had interactions through family members. My family, you know, a lot of um, my family was uh, Winnipeg City Police, Um, cousins, sister, um, in-laws, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But, yeah, in the I think it was my second year. Uh, After my second year, I got hired by the RCMP. I did a summer at Russell, Manitoba, just a normal kind of prairie town of a 1,000 people. And uh, uh, I had applied, I think, at that time for the RCMP full-time in 1982. Um, The advice I got and my thoughts were I should finish my degree because I had a year left. And then when I did finish my degree, uh, they had the freeze uh, on hiring so the RCMP uh, called me up that uh, spring and said, Hey, we've got uh, some good news for you, maybe some bad news too. But uh, And then they offered me a summer job uh, to kind of help me continue on with my education in light of the fact that um, there wasn't any full-time employment. So I uh, took the summer job. I said, What's the good news? They said, Hey, we got the summer job. I said, Well, what's the bad news? Because uh, that was a little concerning that they threw that one in. And uh, <laughs> the bad news was well we're not sure what you're going to think of it but from our personal thing it's going to be your best life experience and that was uh that was uh somewhere at uh, norway house manitoba which was uh at that time uh i think there's probably 12 members there 13 members in northern manitoba i think they had like seven or eight fly-in reserves where you'd go with another member and they drop you off in the plane and pick you up a week later or five days later and uh I think at that time it was considered probably in policing like the most violent um, collection of communities from a policing perspective. So it was a complete, a complete eye opener. Um, you know, going from the theory of university uh, to uh, God's Lake Narrows in northern Manitoba, and um, you know, arriving in the community. And I think I don't know if it was more than two hours arriving in the community before, uh, you know, like, I think I was in Norway House for a couple weeks, but when I went to Gods Lake Narrows, which was kind of the epicenter of violence at that time, um, I don't think I was in that community for more than two hours before I got punched in the face the first time, and I started, started thinking all this theoretical stuff at university uh has some application and it's definitely interesting but uh the world's a slight different place than uh, academia <laughs> so how old were you when you at that point um i was probably 22 uh, 20 you... yeah no uh no i was probably uh i was probably 20 actually yeah yeah maybe maybe 20 at that point yeah
1: does the rcmp still run that that type of program
0: I'm sure they run it, but they I don't think they ran it like they did then because on Sunday night, you know, and, and and I mentioned this before that I'd probably get in trouble saying it, but like on Sunday nights, you know, would be kind of we were in like a like very isolated community, so the boys would get together, like I lived in single man barracks, there were six of us living there and it was kinda of like, Hey, let's get the steaks out, uh a case of beer. Um and you know, particularly Sunday nights, that would be kind of the the boys' night. And if the boys were on night shift, they would put me on night shift by myself. <laughs> and uh, so I would patrol that community. I was a community of like uh, five thousand people, and it was a violent community. So I remember driving around, going to gun complaints and going to other complaints. You know, that night in domestic disputes and not armed, um, doing the patrol and. And uh, just kind of keeping my fingers crossed. And when I reflect back on it, uh, you know, I kind of probably wasn't the wisest decision that I uh, made. But uh, different times, different place. It wouldn't it wouldn't happen today. I'm pretty confident of that.
1: When you finished up with Norway House, uh, you'd already talked about how, you know, you obviously had some experience with the RCMP now. You'd also sort of met some uh, people who were with CSIS. I mean, how did you end up deciding on going to the RCMP, vice, you know, some other avenues?
0: Well, my strategic approach (laughs) was the shotgun approach. Apply for a couple jobs, see who takes me. So I applied for CSIS and the RCMP at the uh, same time. Went through the process. The timing was, and I was in Ottawa at that time going, um, doing my, uh, I guess it would have been my fifth year of university uh, because the RCMP still wasn't hiring at that point. And um, I had developed relationships with uh, some uh, CSIS managers and some RCMP managers. So both were kind of supporting me in both uh, uh, paths in terms of uh, pursuing careers. And um, so I was just going to take, you know, whatever one came first. And the one that uh, came first was, you know, when I went for my final medical for uh, the RCMP, um... I had it uh, one morning and um, uh, with with a doctor, and they said, hey, this is the last step. Uh, you're probably going to get an offer, you know, blah, blah, because blah, there's nothing in your medical here. And then uh, that afternoon, just complete fluke, I had my final medical with uh, CSIS. And uh, I walked into the uh, – actually, it was the other way around. It was uh, CSIS first, RCMP in the afternoon. And I'm uh, sitting in the RCMP uh, headquarters, waiting for the doctor to come in. Door opens, and it's the same uh, doctor from <laughs> CSIS. Uh, I guess they use the same doctors back then. And uh, he looked at me. And he says, "Hey, first of all, I don't have to do the uh, examination because it's the same charts. So well, we're probably going to have to figure out some time to burn here. But do they know that you're applying for both? Which I didn't tell them both. Um, I just, I just." didn't know how to broach that conversation I just thought hey whoever offers me a job I'm gonna go uh, roll with it so uh I had to make a quick decision and I think I just kind of went CSIS you know appeared to be you know probably more cerebral thinking and uh, the RCMP was uh, a little more action orientated and I thought you know at that age whatever I was uh at 22 uh, probably more designed to be a little more action orientated uh, guy um thought I had probably read enough books and uh, written enough papers for a little while so that uh, uh, the RCMP would provide perhaps a diversity uh, a greater diversity of uh, opportunities and that I would probably uh, want to reconsider and go back into CSIS at a later time and uh, yeah so that's how I made that decision. Now, the first step for most Mounties
1: is you, uh, you You go to depot. Yes. Uh, can you describe to the listener what depot is and
0: what uh, what happens there? So depot, uh, you know, paramilitary uh, training taken from uh, the British military training, 32 persons uh, living in a uh, military-type uh, dorm, you know, days starting at uh, whatever it was. I can't remember, 5.15 in the morning you know, starting with uh making your bed perfectly to uh getting dressed, making your perfectly dressed to then uh you know, uh, marching, you know, I forget at uh, seven o'clock in the morning, then having uh breakfast, uh and then going into a series of uh, training scenarios from learning about uh, law, learning about uh driving, uh, learning about operational things, you know, in terms of how to you know intervene in a domestic dispute how to put handcuffs on people how to shoot um, whatever and that that day would go on till usually on most days till nine thirty, nine o'clock at night where there was an expectation that you'd be doing physical training at night extra swimming if you're weak in one area or studying or whatever else for the exam um, and it went on for uh, six months and um, it's a uh, i I found it and i think most most people do uh and from what i understand it's changed dramatically or or, uh, dramatically since um but the um you know learning about teamwork uh that type of training that they used to have which was a little more towards the military side um where they're yelling and screaming at you testing your resiliency building the team and that um I don't know. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, thought it was a great uh, experience and um, probably wish they maintained that because of you know the value that I saw out of it. But uh, I think it's uh, changed since that time. I can imagine, much
1: like the military, that you you formed some pretty deep uh, bonds through that shared experience that that lasted throughout your career and probably to this day.
0: Yeah, I keep in touch Um still and that's going back almost 40 years i still keep in touch um with uh many of them and uh you know as we talked uh, previously when you reflect back on um you know those that you met and you start doing uh, the metrics in terms of um where everybody ended up it's uh it's it's um really kind of an interesting perspective in terms of you know the journey of, at least from a policing perspective, of people's lives and that, and uh, some you know really good, but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of fallout, a lot of uh, tragedies. You know, when I look back at the, the people I trained with, you know, I think it was in the first year somebody uh, was uh, arrested for stealing heroin and engaged uh, with uh, sex workers. Uh, a year or two later um, uh, somebody was involved in an extremely um, brutal sexual or not sexual assault spousal um, uh, assault um, then you know suicides And you know we I'm talking like three, four years after uh, uh, training and, and that kind of continued on um, throughout. Um, you know, 30 or 40 years, you know, where some of the best guys were, you know, charged criminally for extortion. Um, and, you know, then, as you know, um, probably one of the guys I was, uh, well, another guy off, like I'm talking, I'm just processing all these guys that were really good friends, another guy off, uh, for, uh, extremely acute schizo, uh, uh, paranoia. Uh, to the where they had to put his wife um, in in security because of the mental health issues uh, they thought that he was going to kill his wife uh, to then you know more in terms of contemporary times my uh, one of them another one of my close uh, friends who's uh, recently uh, arrested uh, for uh, allegations working with uh, the Chinese uh, government in uh, Canada which when you kind of reflect on all that from the suicides to the heroin trafficking, to the, um, you know, espionage cases. And you look back, you know, back then when you joined, you thought you're kind of the best of the best and the strongest of the strongest. And, uh, you look at, uh, the, uh, fragility of, uh, humans, you know, in terms of the journey. And, uh, you know, in this particular case, in terms of policing and that, and, uh, it's kind of it's kind of sad reflecting on it but it's uh, I guess it's just kind of part of uh, life and I'm sure other professions are similar to that now
1: when you completed uh, depot what was your first uh, your first posting coming out of
0: uh, RCMP basic training so first posting everybody was supposed to almost exclusively go to uh, Vancouver and everybody was planning and conspiring to get two bedroom three bedroom four bedroom uh, apartments and continue the uh uh camaraderie of uh Depot. um and most of them did go to vancouver because it was expo 86 that year um but somehow i uh <laughs> i lost the lotto and i got uh, sent <laughs> to the only place in uh, british columbia uh, where they had a fly-in uh fly-in patrols were flying for uh for a week depending on the weather sometimes longer uh, in terms of uh, indigenous communities in northern uh, BC and for a single guy you know definitely it was something I reflect on and I enjoy but as a uh, 23 year old uh, kid um, I could think of better places to be than a fly in place by myself Um, you know stuck you know nothing to do other than maybe go catch a fish that day or uh look at the mountains for that day but there's no roads no cars no street lights no tv no nothing uh you know and it's like how did i end up here you know and uh so i did that for i think two and a half years and i think somebody felt sorry for me and uh i, I because i was working so hard all all the time and uh, and got me out of there and um got me uh transferred to uh, vancouver eventually
1: do you ever um I wonder if your time in in Norway House contributed to that at all. Did you ever get any sort of uh sense of why everybody else ended up going to live on False Creek
0: in Vancouver and you ended up uh in uh, Mackenzie BC? Yeah, I mean at the end of depot, you got an assessment and um there is definitely guys um, that were, uh, more physically fit than me. There was guys that were smarter than me, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, grades. But I think, uh, I probably went to a small town, you know, based when I reflect on the assessment I got just, um, I go along with people so I wouldn't have a problem getting along in a, a small town. I was a little more easygoing, maybe a little more, I would think balanced than some others. um, And had the ability, I think, to deal with a diversity of uh, different issues. And uh, I think it's like some really good guys went to the big cities, for sure, undoubtedly. But I I think there's a tendency to hide people in the big cities uh, in terms of policing. And, you know, you go to a town of 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 people, you can't really hide uh, in terms of policing. And you're going to have a lot of problems if you have... Personality, so I think they take that into consideration when they decide where you're going to go. And then I think they went, "Hey, this guy's been into um, all these fly-in places. He did well when he was uh, there. Uh, we're going to use him and fill that void, um, and that." So that's how I ended up there. And I was the only single guy there for the first uh, while. It wasn't a, it wasn't a ton of fun.
1: <laughs>
0: what, what did you do in Vancouver when you you came out of McKenzie? So when I came out of McKenzie, I was actually um, um, earmarked to go for the first time they were going to um, uh, have a program for money laundering. And I was, like, I only had, I was 25 maybe. Uh, and I was really um, an aggressive drug um, enforcer, so to speak, in a very small town. So I wasn't, like, doing big international stuff. Um, so they sent me down there with the intention of going to law school, which never happened. I, well, it did, but I did it on my own, not with the RCMP. Um, so I went down to... Um, they were supposed to send me to Vancouver Drugs, and then I got sent down to... Because of administrative uh, issues with uh, vacancies that they had to fill the municipal ones before the federal ones. So I ended up um, in uh, Coquitlam, for, um, which is a suburb of uh, Vancouver, uh, in uniform for uh, nine months, and then moved on to uh, plain clothes shortly thereafter. Uh, into a street crime unit, then a drug unit, then another drug unit, etc.
1: So what, what did Vancouver sort of street crime or criminality look like back then? So when
0: I first went to plain clothes, it was kind of um, dealing with uh, people that were involved, and we were we were a small unit. Of uh, rather, I'm trying to think what the politically eclectic, correct, <laughs> not eclectic. I would say uh, forward leaning policeman in terms of our uh, investigative uh, strategic approach to uh, resolving street crime, uh, and we were looking at uh, armed robbers and. And uh, commercial breaking inner artists, and these guys were like super sophisticated. When when they're doing break-ins, they doing like for a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, you know, taking fifty TVs or taking a hundred TVs or cracking a you know a train car with you know um, computers on it and riding the train you know through the, through different areas, throwing the TVs off and having cars picking up. They were like pretty sophisticated guys. They're all mostly, sadly. <clears throat> all uh drug addicts uh mostly coke some meth but mostly coke addicts and that that we were working and then i went into uh drug enforcement um like nine months later uh after i did the street crimes for her um or sorry 18 months later i did street crimes for eight months 18 months then i went to uh co drug sector and it was mostly dealing with the uh um, Hell's Angels, Hell's Angels associate and that was kind of interesting because it kind of took me back to growing up in Winnipeg which we uh, talked about and having that resiliency and uh, some of my friends still talk to me about it I I just, uh, I think that growing up where I grew up in Winnipeg I, and talking about risk, I just didn't have that um, I was somewhat desensitized to what other people saw as high risk, I saw as maybe medium risk. So I would have a lot of uh, confrontational interactions with the, uh, with uh, the organized criminals uh, and particularly the bikers, you know, where most I found most people like somewhat intimidated by them, but I was, you know, growing up in Winnipeg in the neighborhood. I just, I guess I probably grew up there and just, and and then plus working in Norway house, working in um, Fort Ware in Northern uh, BC my mentality was always you know the worst thing you can do is back down and the most effective way to deal with them you know that I learned in grade five grade six you know dealing with bullies was uh, was uh, kind of just being straight up and kind of uh, taking every approach and interaction as uh, if there were going to be a bully uh, just go game on even though I may have been not as big as some of these guys, and maybe there was three or four or whatever. So I, I did that a lot, so that's what kind of my, I kind of was a little <laughs> known for, and I kind of reflecting because we had a little bit of reunion of a bunch of guys here recently, and we were talking about these type of uh, stories dealing with the uh, the bikers and the drug tri- uh, dealers uh, and that. Um, so I continued doing that. Then I went to Vancouver Drugs, uh, and then it was much more, um, non-street orientated uh, where we're targeting um, international motherships of, uh, you know, the marine environment or ships bringing in containers uh, you know, in the multi-ton level you know, around the world and that, so I, I did that uh, for another uh, couple of years and I was kind of all inspired at, you know, you may ask me down the road here at some point but I'll just interject with it is when I it wasn't until a couple of years ago, actually, that I reflected: How did I end up with this career in this higher end organized crime? And that, and it, and it really came back probably to um, exposure when I was a, a teenager to the movie uh, French Connection and uh, Gene Hackman in it, and and I almost, well, I do laugh. I'm laughing now at it <clears throat> because. <sighs> I grew up as a pretty soft-spoken kid, according to my uh, parents, and um, I grew up to be somebody that um, I would say that my mom didn't recognize later on in life, and she was always, you know, jokingly and affectionately uh, going, "I don't know whatever happened to my uh, my little boy," um, but maybe a little. Uh, like gene hackman in that show maybe a little edgy uh maybe sometimes even too edgy uh you know for the workplace uh and um like very very aggressive and you know but i guess i just i was just it wasn't i don't think it was a uh, um i think it was kind of like gene hackman is a uh, i just cared a lot and uh as a result of uh carrying on i, I developed in that organized crime world uh, an edgy niche so i had that compassion in terms of always respecting you know the drug addicts um the prostitutes and everybody that i ever interacted with i was always super respectful if they were respectful to me um but i i did definitely uh, i think have a a reputation of uh being uh, edgy a bit you did a
1: number of overseas deployments uh, with uh, uh, military environments, United Nations. I mean, how did how did that come about? Because it's certainly not something that is, uh, I think, normative in, in policing. So how did yeah. that first sort of uh, mission in the United Nations Protective Force or UNFOR yeah. come about for you?
0: I was single, 1993, um, recently uh, single, and I... Uh, I just thought, hey, I just want to do something different. I just want to get out of the space I was in. And I was uh, doing some work uh, on the weekend, and I uh, was flipping through my in-basket and saw something uh, going, hey, here's this opportunity uh, for the RCMP to uh, deploy to the United Nations. It was the beginning of the war, in the uh, former uh, Yugoslavia, I guess it had been going on for just about a year, maybe a couple months more than that. And I uh, thought, hmm, I'm single. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now uh, and try something different. I saw it, now that you asked that. I saw it like a couple years earlier than that, and it was the first time the RCMP deployed to Namibia, and I only ha- or, or on a UN uh, thing, and that was to Namibia. But I, I don't even think I had 5 years service, and I think it goes right back now that you asked that question to me being in grade eight, thinking, hey, I want to help people in Africa. When that came up, I applied for it, and it was kind of like that. Uh, those stories you hear about uh, soldiers trying to join the Army when they're 16 or 17, and I was trying to do the same thing to deploy overseas. So and World, go, War, World War II. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I was trying to go, hey, how do I go overseas to Africa on this peacekeeping mission? And uh, I knew I didn't meet the criteria, but I still <laughs> threw in, but they, they were smart enough. They rejected me. And, uh, and so then years later, a couple of years later, I saw this one in Yugoslavia. So I applied, and I um, went there. I didn't know what to uh expect but I can say what I found was was um like completely different than what I uh expected in, you know from a, a war perspective um both both in terms of very positive experience and a uh, horrific experience blended in one and as somebody uh, once Said to a uh, an old uh, good friend of mine. Uh, uh, when when my friend was telling them about my experience, the uh, person who was a uh, uh, somebody that came was was with either the Serbian military or the Croatian military. Said to a friend of mine. When my friend said, "Oh, he just." always wanted to be there and go back uh, you know, basically define war as, hey, it's kind of like a narcotic. It's got the highest high and the lowest low. So that was kind of my experience uh, there. I got involved in, like, some extremely interesting work um, there. I fell into, um, like, within a month or so of getting there, um, dealing with uh, prisoner of war uh, issues, kidnappings, and um, body uh, exchanges which is the exchange of dead bodies during uh, the war which was a big thing and I spent most of my time in my first tour just uh, doing that work and um, uh, it was kind of like the dirty side of uh, the war but I uh, I found it uh, fascinating uh, more than just fascinating I found it like extremely uh, rewarding working with not so much the UN I was almost totally immersed working with um, the warring parties uh, separate from the UN and uh, equally important, the families of those people that were uh, impacted by the war, you know, that had missing people, whether they were, you know, detained in a prisoner of war camp or whether they were um, dead, buried in a mass grave or whatever else. But even uh, something that, um, um, I don't know, what the word was would be uh even getting a family member's body back and that was extremely uh rewarding in terms of the work so yeah I became somewhat addicted to it and um yeah so I did that then I came back for six months or while well, I came back permanently and then about four months into it as we talked earlier I got a phone call and said hey uh would you be interested in going back to uh, Yugoslavia? And I had done fairly well in my first tour. Um, and I had made some like amazing connections at the highest level of um, government in the warring uh, sides. And uh, they said they were looking at <coughs> pushing the police part of the mission into, into uh, central Bosnia, which was still under heavy fighting at that uh, particular time. And they were looking for um, a couple people in the Canadian contingent that um, had the uh, profiles, characteristics, and or experience that they thought they could uh, put in these forward uh, positions uh, with the more intense fighting. So I, uh, I immediately said yes and uh, then deployed for the second time and uh, did similar type work in central Bosnia.
1: When you when you finished up your your time in the former Yugoslavia, is that when the the RCMP started to build its own organic uh,
0: negotiation program? They they had a hostage program, and obviously I was doing all this negotiation stuff and the kidnapping. But they weren't. In, they were just doing regular what I refer to as crisis negotiations. You know, somebody barricaded in the house, upset that their wife left, uh, suicidal, blah blah blah, mentally unstable, <clears throat> etc. Um, and the odd hostage situation where you know somebody's in the bank, gets caught in a crime, they barricade themselves in, they got a couple of hostages, whatever. But it was it was shortly thereafter. Um, In 99, I think it was, there was a kidnapping in, um, I think it was in uh, Peru, or a major hostage taking in Peru, I can't remember what it was, and it was kind of the beginning where the RCMP recognized that they needed this uh, international uh, capacity to respond to international critical incidents involving uh, hostages, and then '911 happened, and I was working with uh, NORAD uh, for about a, a year, um you know, and preparing more for terrorist type uh, issues
1: like plane hijackings in North American airspace yeah yeah yeah
0: and uh and uh, other t- terrorist uh type of incidents as, as well and I think it was right around there they said, hey, we need to uh, develop a um, unique capacity to deal with these acute uh national security type, Incidents through negotiations, and that, and so I got involved, you know, at the ground level for that. Um, was that a Canadian
1: government or a RCMP specific initiative?
0: It was driven. Most of the stuff I was doing was within the context of the RCMP, but for the deployments of it, um, it was it was uh, Global Affairs Canada uh, eventually. But building the capacity of it was uh, an internal RCMP uh, entity. Although we did, you know, back then we started doing some cross training with uh, with the uh, Canadian Armed Forces JTF two and doing exercises uh, with them back at the time. Um, but we we were we didn't have that what I would say uh, the depth and uh, that. But that started in the early two thousands post nine eleven, and then we started building that capacity uh selecting people training people and starting to build that capacity uh you know post 9/11 uh, and that, and I was very involved uh in that and then the other thing that I was involved in the negotiation world was um I got involved dealing with a lot of the uh, indigenous disputes across Canada uh, in a negotiating capacity with the blockades and the violent protests or protests that were anticipated to be violent to try to make them nonviolent um, so joined a ho- regular hostage negotiation team. then I joined while I actually kind of one of the founders of creating a uh, conflict negotiation team which was dealing with disputes across Canada primarily between the Canadian government and indigenous, um, communities, sometimes others as well. Um, and then probably in about two thousand and two or three roughly around there, we created a national, um, a national team for Canada. Uh, it was originally called DERG. Then it went to ING international negotiation group and we were responding to uh, international kidnappings, uh, around the world and deploying, with uh, the military JTF two uh, Csis uh, on behalf of supporting GAC uh, in these uh, situations,
1: maybe give the listener a bit of a sense of of what a situation like that uh, looks like, and you know how you how you navigate all of the different you know elements.
0: Yeah, and every situation's different. I always say, you know, whether it's kidnapping or whether it's indigenous, and I. I honestly was probably the guy. I say, don't call them indigenous ones. They would say native disputes or native blockades or, or whatever else. I'd say, hey, there's always two parties to this thing, and uh, one party is not non-indigenous, um, and, and that's why we called it a community conflict team because it was really, you know, members of the community, including the government, um, that were engaged in it. And then I, I, I say it without, I say it. Um, I think what most Canadians would be surprised, as I was surprised, engaging in these ones, and it would be something like highway number one is blocked and it's, um, you know, Labor Day long weekend Um, and, you know, they were disputing um, some land claim issues in that particular area or... um, Blockade of a railway uh, track, like not a railway track, the railway track going into Vancouver. Uh, so, no railways going to Vancouver. You can imagine the financial implications uh, of that. And you, know, you get 20, 30, 40 people blocking um, that, including elders and spiritual leaders, which make it really, really difficult in terms of enforcement and uh, that to do what i found most interesting was and 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 surprising i guess was i had i found it much easier negotiating dialoguing and resolving problems with the indigenous people i found much easier much more difficult dealing with the canadian government and um and it was really just that um Lack of, I think, humility, um, empathy, and a cultural lens—you know—that didn't—that didn't didn't allow to go. Hey, there's two sides to this uh, story. And I'm definitely, you know, I am, I am that Papa Doyle uh, guy from uh, Gene Hackman, uh, French Connection. But uh, so if. When I saw this, you know, I'm not like the nicest, warmest person always uh, and that, but I, that was my lens on it. I was kind of going, okay, uh, this isn't the problem. This isn't the problem I expected. This is going to be easy to solve this part of the problem. That part of the problem is going to be tougher. And that was, that was dealing with senior bureaucrats that, um, you know, just knew better or... Some some of them, to, to, to in fairness, half half of them had the ego. The other half, in fairness to that, now I'm reflecting on it, were like they just didn't, they just didn't see it that way. Like it was a whole different cultural lens. For example, we were dealing with a it's a famous case because there's books about it, there's movies written about it, um, and I was the lead negotiator on it. And it was a case of a killer whale on the coast, uh, west coast of uh, Canada. And this uh, baby killer whale was interacting in this um, marina, and bumping you know the fishing boats, knocking off you know the different whatever it is depth finders underneath the boats and creating havoc. And uh, then you know people were out fishing on you know like a uh, twenty or twenty five foot you know recreational boat, and the killer whale would come up on the side of the boat, and they would be petting it and feeding it beer and interacting with it, almost like a. A humanistic, uh, like it was almost like a human. And um, the Department of Fisheries was extremely concerned in terms of the safety issues, something was going to happen um, with the whale. But the indigenous community there had just lost their chief. And in their uh, culture, was the chief often comes back as a killer whale. And so this killer whale was seen as the spirit of the chief. To the um, Department of Fisheries, it was seen as a animal that was a nuisance. A nuisance, right? And the approach was let's treat it as a nuisance, and they were looking at hog tying it, literally pulling it up, you know, and that, and putting it in the Vancouver Aquarium. And I'm dealing with the yeah. Indigenous people; and they're going, "That's our chief." And so you're sitting down in the community, but you know downtown Ottawa, they're having these conversations in their boardrooms about this nuisance and the risk and the liability, and they're going to be criticized if they don't do this and this. Well intended, but they don't understand that's cheap. So they're looking at like injecting it with like whatever, putting it up on a truck, shipping it, you know, to Vancouver or whatever. Possibility that it's going to die in the process because it's a high risk type capture type thing, and. Uh, I just remember going into the number two person in charge of uh, the Department of fisheries in the uh, pacific region, and uh he says well i don't i i, I don't get it I, I like i don't I don't understand why they're looking at protesting and doing these blockades and that i, I said well, i said to him oh, i can't remember his name I'll use the name Jim I said jim, can you imagine if you were going to church i said you you went to church as a kid yep yeah. i said, well <laughs> What would somebody's reaction be if you went, if somebody walked up to the altar and just excremented right on the church altar? I said, like, totally disrespected your cult, like your religious beliefs, your spirituality, and just did that, knowing that you were told like how spiritual it was. I said, that's basically what the Department of Fisheries is doing to the, this indigenous group. This this is the most sacred person they have in their community. Is this whale? They it doesn't matter what you see. It is that's what they see. It is and that's why you're getting into it. So it was really, you know, it was really interesting to see that. And, and to his credit, he went, yeah, it like it was a game changer for him right. culturally for his career. It. Yeah, and so like great, fantastic. Uh, Fantastic that like he did that, but a lot of people weren't like that. They weren't as open to kind of like listening and having those conversations. They just go, hey, my way. And I look back at it now, and I'm looking now, and uh, there's lots like um, you know, uh, Indigenous lives matter and stuff like that. But when I look at some of the policing interactions that I see, I I see we, you know, where they're going in with you know 20 30 40 50 you know uh, tactical guys I I have to question I've I've never been in a situation where that ever had to be done if you've actually sat down and had some good conversations with the people and did things strategically but uh, I kind of think we went a little backwards on that but um, yeah that was my experience dealing with that type of stuff
1: yeah, that's that's a really, uh, I think that's a great perspective, Cal. And, and maybe I'll just ask you a question about how your thoughts on the, the convoy in, in Ottawa, because you just sort of indicated, you know, if you're, I guess if you're doing things in a certain way, then you don't necessarily need that 30 or 40 armed people. I mean, what are your, your thoughts reflecting on how the, the convoy in Ottawa was handled?
0: Yeah. So, so the... The, the first thing I guess in fairness you know I, I'll comment but in fairness I wasn't there so um, my 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 comments are, are just general observations based on you know 20 years experience dealing with uh, a lot of this stuff um, and particularly you know inclusive of dealing with more situations and so I'm always a little skeptical and I won't go to being critical, but always skeptical. And I, I can't go to critical because I wasn't here. But I've just found that, you know, the uh, the culture of uh, policing generally, the way that we're trained and the way that we're uh, hardwired more and more in today's society, um, is and particularly in the cities, more so than the... Uh, you know, rural communities of Canada were more kind of, hey, action-oriented, looking at, you know, uh, cost, human resources, going, hey, we've got to get this done, we've got this timeline on it, and the use of forces is usually the more effective one when you look at financial costs and that. I say that generally because if it's done wrong, there's huge costs down the road and that. But I don't find, and I never... Even, you know, when I went, when I was like in 1993, there's 70,000, I think it was or something like that. I can't remember. 17,000, 70,000 peacekeepers in the former Yugoslavia. I remember sitting with the presidents of the exchange commissions for Serbia. He was like super high level government guy. The guy in Croatia. Uh, same guy, his name was Ivan Gruich and coincidentally I'm meeting some of his peers here at, uh, on a panel in a couple weeks and I rem- I'll i never forget, I, I was like the youngest kid in that contingent I was uh, 28 I think my first tour maybe 29 and I'm sitting there and I remember walking up into the uh, Ministry of Defense for uh, Croatia on the third floor, fourth floor and every door I walked by you know, and there weren't that many offices. Like these were big, huge offices they 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 had. And I remember seeing General so and so, General so and so, and General so and so. And I'm like, how did Constable so and so get on this floor? And I walk into the room and I'm having a discussion. And the guy says to me, you know, uh, Kelvin, you're the first time somebody from the UN actually walked into our offices and said, what can you? What you, say, you, you said, you tell me what to do to help you. Nobody's ever come here and said that. You're the first guy in like a year and a half that's actually said, you tell me what to do if I can help you make this war go away. Everybody said, this is what we want you to do. And I think in policing and in government, sometimes I, I, I don't think uh, people think that way. And I would be concerned in the Ottawa environment whether you know, that the situation got so out of hand, which I've seen always, that egos, insecurities, politics, aspirations start infusing the process with the wrong people. Um, and I think in that particular one, um, like most I would imagine that there was probably the infusion of egos and other things um in there i mean that that's been my experience i in most of this kind of like really interesting stuff not always i i did, i never had the big challenge dealing with the criminal i didn't have a had some challenges dealing with terrorists for sure um, and stuff like that, and some didn't work out, as you know. Um, I usually didn't have that many problems with protesters. I was always usually able to get them to, you know, a commonsensical approach is, what do you guys want out of this? I'll get you whatever you want. You tell me what you want, I'll get it for you. And and I, in most cases, that type of thinking I've always found works, but um it's not a type of thinking that I see uh, quite often within the government sector. There you know, it's kinda like uh, negotiating with City Hall. It's like my way, highway, uh, type uh, approach. And whether that took place uh, in Ottawa, I, I don't know, but I would say my experience would would be if I had any type of predictive analysis, I, I would anticipate there is some of that influence in that.
1: We we'd spoken about um some of the more seminal moments in your career and and the, the, the hostage negotiation in the Philippines is, is one that you indicated really uh, sort of stood out and, and maybe represented a bit at the beginning of the end um, for you, the RCMP. Uh, maybe you could give the listener a bit of a, a rundown on on what that what that kidnapping was about and uh, and why that
0: was a, uh,
1: an important moment for
0: you. You know, I, I I had thirty years in and out of uh, conflict zones, war zones, terrorist incidents. You know, negotiating with terrorists in Iraq, Eastern Africa. You know, and then the Philippines uh, came, and uh, like you said, it was probably the beginning of the end of uh, <clears throat> of myself when I reflect on it on my career. Um, and it was a. Uh, it was basically two canadians taken from a a marina south of uh in the south part of uh the philippines in the classic situation i got uh called i was a team leader of the team it was like 2016 i believe and um so i got the first phone call (laughs) I'm, i'm laughing because um I think that's how I became the team leader. The team was, I was always the guy willing to take the first phone call and do the deployment versus having any other leadership attributes other than answering my phone on time. (laughs) And, uh, so I answered the phone and they said, Hey, we've got this situation. Uh, the ambassador, uh, there is looking uh, for help. What's the chances you'd be able to deploy, uh, tomorrow to go to the Philippines. And, um, so, I made mean, some phone calls like I usually do, and everybody had some different uh, challenges in their life. And I said, yeah, I'll be on a plane uh, tomorrow. And I remember going on that uh, plane. It was the first time they hit me. It maybe, you know, we've never talked about this. I never even thought about it. But I remember jumping on the plane from Vancouver Airport, jumping on an Air, uh, uh, Air Japan or Japan Airlines or whatever it is, sitting in first class uh, or business class at the front because they uh, put us there so that when we get there we can you know work 24 hours around the clock so I was sitting there thinking to myself I'm getting kind of old for this and uh, I've been doing this like for a long time like 25 years in and out of dealing with these horrible situations and uh, I remember thinking that when I got onto the plane on the tarmac, going, "How did I end up in this crazy life that I have?" Kind of flying into countries dealing with terrorist kidnappings and hostage situations and executions and and, and that. Anyways, I deployed, went there, set things up, um, um, you know, for the negotiations, made all the contacts. I. I knew some of the Philippine uh, hostage negotiators and that because I had trained with them internationally before. Um, and then I came back, and then my team replaced. Some of my guys replaced me, and then we did rotations on and off for, I guess it was about uh, 10 months, roughly. I guess it was about, maybe about nine months, eight months into it. And I was in back in Canada, um, and they had given the uh, deadline And a couple of guys on the team, experienced guys, uh, were deployed. But we had a call, and there was a deadline given that the hostage, you know, a hostage was going to get executed. Three of them uh, were uh, taken, um, two Canadians and one um, Norwegian, uh, and and some, sorry, uh, a few locals as well. And... um, so the deadline was coming, and I think it was 11 o'clock at night, roughly, going on 12 o'clock at night, and I was, uh, we had the call set up, and I had uh, the, electronically the ability to monitor and give inputs into the negotiations, live time, as we're talking to the hostage takers, which were um, an um, Islamic extremist uh, organization, um, I get them all confused in terms of the names of them all now. The deadline was coming up, and they said, "Hey, if you don't pay, you know, gazillion dollars, um, we're going to execute somebody." And uh, I remember sitting on my kitchen counter, and then, uh, you know, basically saying, "Time up!" in not so nice language, and um, the uh, they went to execute the person. Uh, you know, you could hear the beginning of it. And uh, I remember sitting, I was sitting at my kitchen counter, and I, and not to uh, be distasteful, but uh, I remember sitting there, and I just renovated my whole house, and um, this is where the beginning of the end starts, um, because I, I remember, you know, for years after, sitting at that kitchen counter, I usually brought back that... Uh, Memory, but anyways, fast forward. Uh, a couple months later, uh, they had another deadline, and uh, so they the same deadline. And at that point, <coughs> the Australians were looking at, uh, or Australians, sorry, the Norwegians were looking at paying. I uh, was uh, rather, uh, yeah, the Australians were looking at paying. I had. Two younger guys there. I was back in Vancouver on a rotation out, so I asked Ottawa, hey, can I go? I don't want those guys to be there by themselves when, you know, it looked like it was going to be another execution. Um, And uh, so I deployed, met with the uh, Norwegians. That didn't go that well. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, after my meeting with the Norwegians, because they had agreed to uh, do things collaboratively, strategically together, and I met with them uh, as soon as I uh, landed. I think it was probably four hours later. I got called into the Canadian ambassador's office and said, "Hey, uh, I just got a call from uh, the minister of foreign affairs in Canada, who got a phone call from the minister of foreign affairs." in Norway uh, several hours ago and I was uh, asked to uh, be banned by the from the uh, Norwegian uh, embassy and uh, required not to interact with the uh, Norwegians anymore um a sense of betrayal uh, to the ambassador's credit he thanked me for doing it but said I I still have to tell you that he said I knew I know why you did it it was the right thing to do uh, somebody had to do it, and thanks for you doing it. So I think it was the next day the deadline came, and uh, we were trying extremely difficult, uh, engaging with the terrorist uh, group, having conversations, and but we knew, uh, again, uh was going to happen. So that was, they got uh, executed, uh, the second Canadian, and um, it was uh, extremely Difficult, I think, because we were like part of the process it wasn't as if like it was a homicide and happened like last night and I was in bed and somebody got what but you're part of the process and the whole team was part of the process so it had a significant impact uh, on um, everybody um, it had a big impact on uh, me for sure and I, I think it was probably you know that last drop of water in the glass and I just went I don't think I recognized it right then um when i reflect on it i should have recognized it but i didn't and uh and then um shortly thereafter like several years after like 2 years after i retired but if i really reflect on why did i retire is probably uh it was probably i just thought physical health mental health um 30 years in another war zones time to uh hang up the uh, spurs and uh, You know, and uh, retire and do something else. So that's that's what I did. And then you didn't do something else. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I I did something else. I went into the private sector. I came home that day because I I had no plans to retire. I just I I just made this really quick decision and and uh, to uh, retire. There was some organizational anxiety about it because they uh, knew that I had a very um, a career that was exposed to a lot of uh, trauma so that because of the quickness of it they automatically assumed it was that but it was I, I i just felt tired i just i just thought i'm losing my edge uh i'm gonna go so i <clears throat> i drove home from work that day you know didn't tell anybody i quit but i was gonna write an email my uh girlfriend at the time now wife says uh um uh what are you gonna do and i said I'm gonna be a bartender and uh I just want to do something different and uh, as you alluded to with your comment and then all my uh, former military friends started calling me several weeks later saying hey uh, somebody here got kidnapped or somebody went back uh, is missing in uh, Syria uh, somebody got taken to uh, Lebanon and the next thing you know I'm back in the same game I'm in the private sector and, and that's what I'm doing now not just kidnappings but uh, a little broader than that uh, with a corporate business that does a lot of high-risk uh, type of activities in the ranging from kidnappings to espionage national security due diligence intelligence like a whole bunch of different stuff investigations
1: based on you know decades of, of dealing with, with with risk violence um, and, and working in all sorts of parts of the world I mean is there any sort of advice you'd give to Canadians on, on how to assess risk when they're deciding where to travel to or you know maybe take a take a work position
0: somewhere well i think you know if you asked me that question a month ago i would have given you answer x if you asked me that um 2 years ago i would have said y if you asked me 5 years ago i would have said z and if you ask me tomorrow I'll probably come up with a different answer than uh, today because the world is so fluid um, right now in terms of uh, risk and security and that and I I, I, I think the and it's not only um, traveling abroad, it's even it's even you know, because I've, I've worked a lot with the diaspora communities in Canada. We know the headlines recently with, you know, um, allegations regarding India, um, uh, Chinese interference, um, Iranian interference and operatives here is not only, I, I, I think, you know, and I, and I, and I put a lot of, uh, responsibility on, um, on the Canadian government that I think that we have not done a great job educating Canadians and the youth as to what's the real world like. I definitely, you know, in my travels found that, um, you know, somebody would say to me, uh, well, what you're saying is not the real world. I'm going, yeah, it is the real world. Canada is not the real world. Out there, it's a whole different world out there. In Canada, we've been so, so, so fortunate, you know, um, you know, going all the way back to, you know, my grandfather, who was a vet in World War II, creating this great country, you know, that whatever. Um, but I do think Canadians have a false sense of reality as to what that world looks like. Definitely around the world, and they have to be cautious uh, of it and, and, and know that it's going to like things are so unpredictable now you know going into countries um now you just you don't know i mean you even get travel warnings for, you know um for those in the US and the UK is putting out travel warnings about even traveling to Canada and stuff like that so it, traveling super high risk but i would say even just living in these communities these times like particularly you know large despair communities there is foreign operations taking place in Canada. You know, they come out and say India. Well, I guarantee, I know for a fact, China, I know for a fact, Iran, uh, is here. Um, and I'm sure a whole host of other countries doing nasty things to people and stuff like that. So, you know, some of the subtleties in terms of the threats may be just like inside threats, you know, that maybe not, hey, a kidnapping or a terrorist or a violent uh, attack, you know, in terms of a bomb in Spain uh, or something going off at a tourist location. Um, but also just uh, not to create a whole degree of paranoia, but the world's uh, becoming much more polarized and in reality, you know, and we didn't talk that much about it. You know, we're in kind of this. Thing where people are saying, "Hey, do you think we're going to go to war? Do you think we're not?" I already think we're in a war right now, and uh, Canadians just need to have that awareness that um, some countries see us as the adversary. And when they're traveling, you know, abroad, or even when they're here, you know, living in Canada, um, they just have to be aware of this this consideration that we're living at times that are um, highly volatile and uh, pose a risk to everybody I think and and, and not just to certain individuals and that and I know myself uh, because even myself I've found myself in some security situations where I'm even concerned for my own uh, safety and if it's not my own personal safety I'm even worried about it from a cyber perspective where I'm going to be not just a coincidental click and get scammed but where I'm actually being targeted because of the type of work I do or something else so yeah, I, I, I think Canadians just uh, have to up their game and kind of wake up a bit.
1: We'll, uh, we'll close the podcast off, Cal, with a question I ask everybody about uh, if you have a recommendation, and I'm excited to hear yours because you're uh, you're in Vancouver, so most of the, in fact, I think almost all the podcast guests so far have been in and around the, the sort of Ottawa, Toronto area. I mean, so do you have a, a recommendation for the listeners that you can either educate, uh, entertain them when they're out in Vancouver, or maybe a cause that you'd like to, to elevate?
0: I'm going to take two of that one and uh, grab two without asking if I could. Um, the uh, I'm going to put a plug in for um, a former um, military uh, intelligence officer who just... Uh, Wrote a book uh, called "The Mosaic Effect," and um, it's a book regarding Chinese influence in uh, Canada, particularly focused in Vancouver. And the author uh, is uh, Scott McGregor and uh, Ina Mitchell. And I gave you a book before you walked in the room. I, I got to put a plug on that because I think it's really important for Canadians to take a look at it. And I know it was a real struggle, you know, in terms of him, you know, working through the business aspect of getting a book published like that and the risk a- attached to it uh, legally so i have to put a plug there but the other uh, plug and it's more uh, uh, a personal uh, plug directed towards you is uh, when you're in vancouver to do the gross grind um uh, which is a uh, rather intense climb up the side of uh, a mountain in vancouver and uh, i would say it's probably been the um, best medicinal kind of effect in terms of, you know, putting 30 years behind me and being able to uh, shape those 30 years in terms of uh, very uh, positive memories and, uh, you know, uh, leading me to kind of having not only a happy uh, life, but a healthy life after uh, 30 years of uh, the school of hard knocks. Cal, it's been awesome to have a
1: chance to meet you in person and sitting down and do this. And, And thanks again for being one of our Northern Sentinels.
0: Thanks very much for uh, having me. It's a great podcast. I look forward to uh, listening to some of your other guests as well.
1: You can find the information in the show notes on the RCMP basic training at Depot, the Philippines kidnapping, the recently released book, The Mosaic Effect, and the grouse grind hike in Vancouver. Thanks for listening to the NSP, and goodbye until next time.